Welcome to Downstream here on Navarra Media. My name is Aaron Bastani. This week's guest is Francis Fukuyama, who memorably declared in his book The End of History and The Last Man, written in 1992, that liberalism was the ideological endpoint of human history, and that with the fall of the Berlin Wall, Western capitalism had won. The book rapidly gained cult status and served as a kind of intellectual handbook for the post-Cold War era, its thinking shorthand for a now triumphant West. Like anyone, Fukuyama's thinking has developed since then, but one of the primary investigations of that work, liberalism as a political and economic orthodoxy, takes centre stage in his new book, Liberalism and Its Discontents. Francis Fukuyama, welcome to Downstream. Thank you very much. Uh, before we go any further, people are very familiar with your name. It was in my book. It was in my PhD. It was probably in my <laughs> master's. I mean, this is uh-huh. the curse of your sort of celebrity. But despite that, I, I think people probably don't know that much about you sort of personally. Mm-hmm. So I thought I'd ask some, some questions, also sort of political questions, right. to, to delve a little bit deeper. What film best captures the end of history? Because there was a zeitgeist you caught in your book. Where is that in popular culture, we think? That was the moment. Well, I think a film that captured the end of history would actually be pretty boring uh, because it would be just, you know, kind of ordinary life in a liberal democracy. Uh, I actually really like uh, dystopian science fiction movies. My favorite one for a long time was The Road Warrior, the original Mel Gibson one. And then... um, the latest Fury Road that came out in, I think, 2016, uh, in a way, uh, <laughs> is, is, it's not the end of history, but it's, it's kind of the, the polar opposite where mm-hmm. resource scarcity has come back and, you know, you have this return to uh, a kind of barbarism. Uh, and, you know, I like, uh, I like movies like that because it's good to imagine what, you know, what the alternative to the end of history is. Who's your favorite president in a sentence and why? To be a little bit more interesting than someone like Abraham Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt was actually quite an interesting president because he was the one that kicked off the progressive era. He was the governor of New York. He chaired the, um, uh, the, the first um, civil service commission. I'm actually quite interested in bureaucracy and uh, state building and he was a big state builder uh, because prior to his period, the United States only had a patronage service where everybody was a political appointee. So the idea that you should have a modern uh, skill-based uh, expert civil service was very much associated with Roosevelt. Uh, I love the American West. Uh, I actually don't think there's anything beautiful in the United States east of the Mississippi River, even though I grew up in New York City and you know so forth. Um, and he created the national park system. And so, you know, these unbelievably beautiful places out west uh, wouldn't exist. I mean, they'd all be commercialized and terrible if it weren't for Roosevelt and his love of nature. So, you know, he has a special place in, in my pantheon of great leaders. That's a great answer. And who's the worst president? And you can't say Trump. Why, why can't I say Trump? Okay, you can say Trump. <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that, in your opinion, the worst Oh, yeah. US I president? mean, without question, I, I think one of the most disappointing things in my lifetime has been that the American people could actually elect this idiot, you know, president. Uh, I, I actually thought people had more sense than that. But, you know, there he is. In fact, I have a hard time imagining somebody with worse character to be a, a national leader, you know, of that stature. 
uh, even you know the most imaginative uh, you know filmmaker couldn't create a character I think worse than Trump you know in so many ways. Did you not see him coming then in two in two thousand and sixteen? Obviously, he 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 ran home with the Republican nomination, and I don't think anybody thought he was going to win the popular vote. But you 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 you're one of those people, presumably like. You know, I think Huffington Post on the day gave him a three percent chance of winning or something. You just thought absolutely implausible. I did think it was very implausible, and all the polls were showing that Hillary would win. So yeah, I was very devastated the day that uh, the day after. So I, I guess in twenty twenty, when you get COVID, all these massive challenges for him. Obviously, a hostile media, and 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 you would say justifiably. I would say justifiably. Obviously, his supporters would disagree, but it's a hostile media. Despite all that, you do get a really big turnout for him. He's winning states like Florida with these big ethnic minority groups, which are meant to be the sort of basis of the new democratic base. Mm-hmm. I know Florida's quite unique, but just, just for argument's sake, what, what's happened in America where you can get that level of support for somebody who, who, in your own estimation, has no right to even be anywhere near the White House or in, in, yeah, in contention? That's a really good question, and I think it's one the Democrats haven't explored fully because... In my experience, uh, a lot of people that voted for Trump didn't vote for Trump, but they were voting against the Democrats, uh, especially in these critical swing states like, you know, Pennsylvania and Michigan and, and, and so forth. Uh, and I don't think that they appreciate, you know, how toxic a lot of things the Democrats were pushing are, like defund the police, which I think has to be the stupidest political slogan anyone has ever... But they weren't pushing that in 2016. I mean, Henry Clinton's oh, yeah. a very oh, I'm moderate... Oh, you're talking about 2016. Yeah, well, yeah. well, both. I mean... Well, the thing about 2020 is interesting because the turnout in many minority groups, including African Americans, was actually higher mm. uh, in 2020 than mm. in 2016. And so that's something you really have to explain why, despite all of the terrible things that he did and how terrible a president he was... He still got a lot of people to vote for him four years later. And that's, you know, that's something that I think we fully haven't taken aboard yet. But when you say something like defund the police, and I'm sure that's unpopular with middle America, but when you started to say they are, they are ambivalent or they dislike a certain set of policies or ideas or values that the Democrats stand for, in my head, I think... Metropolitan elite. I know that comes with a bunch of sort of that often means you know certain things which are race, racialized and mm-hmm. sexualized, etc. But they mean coastal elites. They mean the powerful. They mean effectively a, a political class broadly insulated from popular pressure, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in, in this in the sphere of economics for, yes, for 30, 40, 30, 40 years, monetary policy, trade policy, etc. Mm-hmm. I mean that's. I mean, that's right, isn't it? I mean, there's been big mistakes made by the American establishment. Oh, sure. No, I mean, I think actually that's uh, what made me no longer consider myself a conservative because the two biggest mistakes in the early 2000s were first the Iraq War and then the financial crisis, both of which were the direct outcome of, you know, I think blinders that conservatives had on. First, uh, you know, the first was about the uses of American hard power uh, and the second was, you know, the idea that deregulated financial markets would be self-correcting and neither of those was true and both of them you know were had disastrous outcomes uh, and I think that you know 2016 and the popular surge probably wouldn't have happened in the absence of those big mistakes uh, so I'm the last person in the world that would say that American elites really know what they're doing and have guided the country wisely and therefore 
any kind of populist reaction to them is is unjustified. I don't think that's true. Do you think they've corrected since then? Because obviously you've got this huge scare of Trump. He almost mm-hmm. wins again in 2020. Do you think Washington and, and, and those same elites, and I say liberal elites, it, they encompass both parties to an extent or the, mm-hmm. the political centre of the country? Do you think they've had a sufficient shock and you say never again and they've course corrected or, or are they no, still not making... I- the changes they need to. I don't think so. I mean, the issues are a little bit different. I mean, in some areas, they've they've course corrected. So I think that nobody is ever going to argue for the kind of, you know, free trade based globalization that emerged. You know, by the time you got to Obama, that had been supported by a whole series of presidents, uh, where you know multinational corporations search for every little bit of efficiency by outsourcing whatever they can. I think. That period, uh, we're probably not going to uh, go back to. Um, but you know, a lot of the issues that drove people crazy in 2016, 2020, I think, are still not you know really resolved. Do you think there's a chance that Trump can win again in 2024? Oh yeah, there's definitely a chance. I mean, it's very troublesome. Uh, I think that the threat to democracy in America is probably the strongest it's been really since the Civil War because. Uh, you know, something like 70% of Republican voters believe Trump uh, when he says that the sto- the election was stolen in 2020. Mm. And as a result, Republicans all over the country have been trying to change not just voter access rules, but the way that the vote is counted uh, such that they could award the electors in the 2024 election to a Republican if uh, they don't get, you know, a sufficient popular vote. So it's completely anti-democratic uh, initiative that they're undertaking. And if they do that, you know, uh, and it's a close election, I think, you know, the chances for violence uh, are pretty high because both sides are really energized on this issue. Uh, and, you know, I think it's a big danger to demo- you know, the, most, the most fundamental democratic institution, really, which is the ability to vote and then have a peaceful transfer of power may not happen in 2024. In your book, you put a lot of this down to, which we'll come to shortly, um, you put a lot of this down to new media, social media, but I want to sort of draw out the continuities between the problems you've just highlighted there, the potential problems there, and what's happened in the past. So there's clearly a, a, a significant minority of, of US citizens who have bought into an alternative reality. I mean, that's indisputable. But when I think about, you know, in the, in the years after 9-11, I think at one point something like 70% of Americans thought that Saddam was guilty for the Twin Towers attacks. You've got the 2000 election, which I think, you know, Greg Pallas, the journalist, covered it really well at the time, particularly here in Britain with Newsnight and The Observer. There's a really good argument that Bush never won that election. Some very strange things happened. You know, I think there was a relative calling the results that night on Fox News and so on. Just very, things you wouldn't expect in democracy. So I wonder, you know, to, to, to what extent then are these issues you're talking about a fundamental rupture with the United States of the early 2000s or, or, or are we just seeing them a bit more, a bit more now? You know, because Stop the Steal was crazy, but I mean, maybe so was the Florida account in 2000. It's just we didn't have people recording on iPhones and so on. Uh, I don't think that's really, well, look, the polarization started really in the 1990s. And the polarization is really what's driving the cognitive uh, disagreement, uh, you know, that it's it's a different model. You know, people don't take facts in and rationally process them and come to conclusions. They start with the conclusions and then they select the facts that they want, you know, that will support their conclusions. That's really, I think, the mental process 
that's going on. And so there's this prior polarization that's led people to, you know, pick the facts that they want. And the internet has made that mm. uh, much easier to do. However, Trump made it much, much worse uh, mm. because, you know, every American election has irregularities. You know, the 1960 election that brought Kennedy to power, it looks like, you know, there's a lot of tampering with the vote in Chicago. And, you know, so it's it's not as if this is a new thing, but to just outright make up a story about massive voter fraud sufficient to swing an election by which the winner won by 8 million votes. I mean, that's just something without any any precedent uh, at all. And to support uh, a violent insurrection where you occupy the Capitol on January 6th, uh, that's also pretty much without precedent. And so I do think that, you know, Trump personally uh, has made things much, much worse than they were. And they were pretty bad, you know, to begin with. Yeah, I guess I ask that because obviously if Trump is a sweet, generous figure, if he's a one-off, then that, that's a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. Because then obviously once he's departed the political scene, whether that's this year, four years, 10 years, you get a relative return to normality. But if he's an avatar for something deeper, which you're saying sort of begins with the polarization of the 1990s, it's obviously a different challenge. Why did it start in the 1990s? And, and, and who would you blame? Is that the result of sort of certain political ideologues who were pressing things, taking opportunities from the right? Was it the centre taking their eye off the ball, thinking that, you know, actually we don't need to work with labour unions anymore? If you're going to apportion blame for that polarisation, mm -hmm. who are the culprits? Well, um, there's several levels of analysis. Um, there's that political layer. And in the political layer, you know, most people would blame Newt Gingrich, uh, who led this a Republican uh, House majority uh, that was opposed to Bill Clinton uh, and, you know, really, I think, coarsened the nature of American politics by just declaring all-out war on everything the Democrats did. But the sociological and economic changes under the surface, I think, were more important drivers of this. Uh, and it was really one of the consequences of the kind of globalization that we were engaged in uh, because you know, the, the old class divisions were replaced by a new one in which it's really level of education that determined how you were going to vote. Uh, and so in every uh, state in the union, you know, even in the red states, the, you know, the, the state capital or the place where the state university is, is going to vote blue, solidly democratic. The rest of the place will be red. Uh, and you get this map uh, in which the single biggest correlate uh, of how you're going to vote is population density. And that's kind of a new word. And that's not just in the United States. This is going on in a lot of different uh, countries. But this is, I think, the product of moving into a kind of post-industrial world. One of the really big changes is in gender relations because, you know, the fact of the matter is in a, in a world in which physical strength, upper body strength is not that important, everybody's sitting in front of a computer screen, Women just do better. You know, you look at college attendance rates. I think nationally in the United States, 60% of undergraduates are women. They graduate at a much higher rate than men do. So they've been replacing men in many occupations, you know, up and down the, the, the road. So this is just one aspect. So it's, you know, changing demographics in terms of ethnicity, changing gender relations. And it's made a lot of people, especially white men, you know, without good educations feel very insecure. And I think that's one of the big drivers of, you know, that's that's one of the big demographics that has been in support of Donald Trump. 
who's a bigger threat to liberal democracy? Because you've got this focus on new media. Mm-hmm. Joe Rogan or Tucker Carlson? Oh, Tucker Carlson, without question. I mean, well, look, I, I don't, I, I have to confess, I don't really regularly listen to either of them. Uh, but uh, I do think that Tucker Carlson has just become completely toxic. I mean, he's one of these people who, you know, if a Democrat takes a position, he takes the opposite, regardless of the merits of the position. And I think this this business of supporting Putin is just the best example of this. You know, Republicans uh, uh, cut their teeth on opposition to Russia uh, and being more hardline than the Democrats. And he's completely thrown that out the window because, you know, he wants something to hit Biden with. And uh, that level of toxicity is really just extraordinary. Whereas Joe Rogan, you know, he kind of tends to favor more conservatives, you know, and puts anti-vaxxers on and that sort Mm. of thing. But I don't think he's deliberately setting out to poison the national discourse the way Tucker Carlson is. Yeah, I mean, just for the record, I'm not a Rogan, you know, skeptic. I don't think he should be deplatformed or anything. It's just an interesting debate. But what, what Tucker Carlson says, I mean, it's immensely popular with a, a significant swathe of the electorate, and it cuts through. I mean, I watch, I watch him virtually every day, just the, the clips and stuff that yeah, you see, yeah. and he's, he's obviously very good at what he does. Like you say, he gets, he gets whatever the Democrats are saying, and he gives a relatively compelling, sort of emotionally congruent set of messages, and you say, okay, this is internally coherent in some way. But Trump in 2016... And 2020 is going to places which, you know, uh, was like you say, staunchly opposed to the Soviet Union, the electorate. These were major issues, core issues, right until mm-hmm. the 1990s. And now he's saying, look, we need to be friendly with Putin. And they, and they support him. I mean, that, there's not a vault fast I can think of in terms of, of, of a domestic electorate's views on foreign policy. I can't think of another one. It's like saying in 10 years' time, oh, you know, we should be best friends with Al Qaeda and actually yeah. the Taliban are great trading partners. So, and I'm not drawing an equivalence between the USSR and the Taliban. It's just that's the sort of shift in no, absolutely. In, in preferences. So, I mean, again, what it, what explains that? Because, I mean, it's easy to say, and this is what the Beltway says, oh, 70 million people have just gone crazy. But, yeah. I mean, that, that can't be it. Yeah. Well, that's why I'm saying that, uh, you know, the you don't start with policy preferences and then vote for the candidate that supports your policy. That's what... This is the this is the fairy tale that political scientists tell themselves about the rational voter. They 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 want the candidate to win, and therefore whatever the candidate says is what their policy preference is. And so I think people are actually much more plastic or moldable than than people think, particularly in foreign policy, because people really don't have particularly fixed views. Uh, this was true actually, even you know the whole period of the Cold War. You couldn't get a majority of Americans to say that we should defend Germany if attacked by the Soviet Union, uh, but the elites, you know, were pretty consistent, and there was a bipartisan support for that position. So people kind of went along with it. But now you're in this very confusing moment when the elites are saying very, very different things, and uh, you know, it's driven more by your domestic policy uh, preferences rather than by any view, coherent view of what the outside world is like. That's so interesting. So the idea that there's elite, the elite consensus has collapsed on foreign policy, which has created this vacuum. I suppose you sort of see microcosms of this. So like when Trump said about John McCain, who was obviously um, shut down over Vietnam, was a POW for years, and he said, I prefer my war heroes not to be caught. Mm-hmm. He says the most extraordinary things. And I don't think you need to be a political scientist to, to presume 
that's going to not play well with the Republican base. Mm -hmm. But it, it never did. Yeah, that's right. How's that possible? Because these are deep, instinctive things, Republican Party, the military. I mean, it's... Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, you would think so. But in a way, uh, people admire Trump for being disruptive and being willing to, you know, take these um, really outrageous positions. And I think they, you know, this is this owning the libs <laughs> phenomenon. They really like upsetting people on the other side. And if it upsets them, you know, to insult John McCain, then they're going to, you know, they're going to do that. Uh, you know, this is in general... What I've learned about politics over the last few years that, I mean, if you want to know things that have surprised me, is that uh, people are really, um, you know, the, the psychology of, you know, politics is really pretty complicated. And it is this cognitive process of having, you know, the, the pref not stable, ha not having stable preferences, but really uh, following a kind of social psychology where siding with your team is more important than what you would normally think of as long-held policy preferences. So free trade, you know, out the window, uh, because Trump says it's not a good thing, uh, that, uh, you know, similar kind of revolution. Uh, and so I do think that rather than looking at policy preferences and kind of rational voters, that you really need to consult a social psychologist as to what sorts of personal needs is this kind of followership fulfilling in individuals and why do they feel this psychological need rather than trying to explain it in terms of you know policy outcomes yeah i remember the lrb did a great piece the london review of books did a great piece about brexit and the argument was that large numbers of people voted for leaving the eu because they didn't think anything can change. Mm -hmm. So there's no downside. Like you say, you, you trigger the libs, mm -hmm. and nothing changes anyway. Yeah. Things broadly stay the same, which is an ideological claim, which comes out of sort of 50, 60 years of unprecedented peace. Mm -hmm. Interesting. But the idea that owning the libs, because it explains tens of millions of people, I mean, it's, I mean, maybe. What do you think of the new generation of conservative influencers and pundits, people like Stephen Crowder, Candy Owens, Ben Shapiro? Do, do you think they're injurious for a sort of liberal body politic? Because they're not even trying to play by the rules very often. No, they're terrible. I mean, it, it's kind of the the decline and decay of, you know, civil conversation where you get these, I don't know, entrepreneurs who make names for themselves as influencers simply by being outrageous. I think uh, it's really not healthy. And again, it, it reflects more of this social psychology that you want to show your loyalty to the team rather than, you know, take any serious effort to grapple with policy problems and outcomes that, that you know, you might prefer. So do you think the U.S. should go down the route of China and say, you know, don't have a great firewall, but you say, look, we're going to build in certain political affordances. So, for instance, in, in China, they've removed the idea that you can accumulate like likes and things like this. Do you think that maybe there's a role for the state to change the incentive structures for these things? Because they don't, they don't seem positive. This is a really complicated question because I think that the to the extent that the state gets in the business of moderating content on the internet, you set a very dangerous precedent. Uh, right now, we've kind of settled for a situation in which we delegate that to these big platforms and I don't think that that's a particularly good uh, outcome either, because I don't think they've got either the capacity, but more important, uh, the legitimacy uh, to do that kind of moderation. I mean, 
I have some ideas about alternative ways you could deal with this problem, but I think that neither of those approaches is good, least of all the Chinese one, where you just have the government, you know, say what's acceptable and what's factual mm. and so forth. I mean, I say that I say the Chinese example flippantly, but I, I think because because for us in the West over the last 30, 40 years, it's such a major thing. The idea that a state <clears throat> would say to a private enterprise, you should do this, this or that, it seems so, wow, that's incredible. But it, it's also quite reasonable. Like, you know, for instance, the the bans on pornography mm -hmm. or the time limits on TikTok for right. people of a certain age. I mean, for instance, should a nine-year-old be able to use TikTok more than three hours a day? I mean, that's actually a policy debate we probably don't have in the West. Mm -hmm. And the idea that the state would put a, a, a limit on that, I, well, it's, it's acted similarly before mm -hmm. on various things. You couldn't access certain goods and services until a certain sure. age. Uh, we just may be in the wrong mindset here because actually Western liberalism shows us a bunch of policy steps that we're no longer pursuing. Well, I think that there have always been limits to First Amendment freedoms. I mean, we have a much stricter First Amendment than, you know, you do here in the UK. Uh, but um, it's always been limited, as you say. So, you know, the FCC prevents uh, stations from broadcasting hardcore pornography, you know, over the air, and they've done that. But I think that in those cases, or, you know, terrorist violence or incitement, you know, to violence, I think in all those cases, there's actually a pretty strong political consensus that this is something we want to have happen. But when you get into these really complex political judgments mm. about, you know, at what point does your commentary on vaccine safety veer over into, you know, deliberately fake news, that's a pretty complicated thing where the state... Uh, you know, I would not really trust the state to make those judgments. And I think the design of a good institution, you know, really depends on it not mattering who's in charge of that state, you know, for those judgments to, you know, to work. You distinguish classical liberalism, which is this quite capacious thing, encompasses the United States and Sweden, to neoliberalism. So, so what's the difference? Well, neoliberalism, the way I use it, refers really to um, the extension of economic liberalism to an extreme that I think became self-defeating uh, that started really in the late 70s and 80s. You know, politically, it was supported by Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, but it also had an intellectual base, you know, at the University of Chicago with economists like Milton Friedman or Gary Becker, or George Stigler, who all you know, were pro-market, but I think um, distorted policy by really being anti-state as a result. And the policies that this led to, you know, were things like the deregulation of financial markets that led directly uh, to the um, uh, subprime mortgage crisis in 2008, uh, were vastly, you know, destabilizing, and I think um, created a lot of the inequality that has been driving uh, the populism that we saw in the 2010s. And what about public ownership? So, for instance, in this country, Margaret Thatcher privatizes everything. Yeah. Presumably, you, you agree with some of it, disagree with some of it. Can you explain sort of why, where yeah. neoliberalism goes too far? No, I think that, um, you know, there's no reason that the British government should own, you know, British telecom or British steel because those could be operated by a private operator just as well. But, you know, certain public utilities uh, are really natural monopolies. And all over the world, there is an effort to privatize waterworks or, uh, you know, sewerage systems, things like that. Um, 
And also, they were done uh, improperly. I mean, uh, one of the biggest scandals was Telmex. You know, this was a state monopoly on telecommunications that was sold off to uh, Carlos Slim, uh, and they converted basically a private a public monopoly into a private monopoly that was unregulated. And as a result, Slim turned out to be one of the richest men in the world, and Mexican telephone prices are still way too high. So it's both the method by which you do the privatization and it's also the nature of the, you know, the, the asset that's being privatized that makes a difference. So in this country right now, as across Europe, as across the world, but particularly in Europe, energy prices are, are rocketing. And the left, the center left in this country where the left is saying, well, we should bring energy companies to public ownership or a big share of the equity so that we can have more control over prices effectively mm -hmm. for the consumer. The conservatives are saying, no, we'll interfere in the market, which obviously is good but we're not going to do that. And the Labour Party was formally committed to public ownership and now is kind of like, oh, we'll increase VAT or something. But from what you're saying with regards to natural monopolies, it sounds to me like, I know left-right doesn't make sense all the time, but it sounds to me like on this issue, you're more to the left than the Labour Party because you're saying it's a natural monopoly. It should, there's a good argument for public ownership, which is something that's kind of anathema right now. No, I don't think that um, energy is a natural monopoly. I mean, so what would be a natural monopoly then? Well, you know, something like um, the water and sewerage system in a big metropolitan district where you're not going to have complete competing firms laying, you know, pipes to everybody's home. Uh, there really can't be competition in that, uh, that kind of a situation. How about rail? Because obviously you can't have multiple tra or you can't have multiple buses on the same. I mean, you can, but I've never, I've never seen it work. Yeah. So how about public transport? Yeah, I think that uh, is a case where you probably could, you know, have a public... Um, ownership more easily because competition becomes less uh, less effective. I mean, there are ways of getting around that, uh, you know, by forcing uh, companies that own the tracks to open them up to, you know, to others. But it's very hard to regulate that and manage that effectively. So that might be better owned in public. But, but the, you know, oil and gas, it's it's such a global market. Uh, these, uh, you know, the, what they produce is so fungible and there's so many players that I don't think, you know, it really qualifies as uh, anything like a natural monopoly. So on, on, okay, on buses, at least you agree with, say, something like Andy Burnham. That's something. What I'd say is, you know, this is, was always made me laugh. You know, when people are waiting for a bus, I can't, who, who thinks, oh yeah, you know what, I'm not going to get this one. I'll wait for the one that's five minutes time because it's better value. More. No, you want a regular, affordable, efficient bus service. Right, right. So when did Reaganism and, and Thatcherism go too far? Because you, you're saying that they, they addressed some problems, but then they exacerbated others. I mean, what's the balance sheet here? Was, was Reaganism and Thatcherism a failure? Because if, it, if, if these revolutions did precipitate this rise of populism, and that does lead to the end of liberal democracy, and in, in your book, you quite clearly say that's not the case. You don't think America's going to descend into armed violence. But if it did, I mean, that's quite a big legacy for those two, given the, the status they've had in our politics for the last 20, 30 years, which has generally been positive. Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, I think the record is a very mixed one. So I think some of the big privatizations uh, that Thatcher, you know, promoted were, were justified. Uh, I think that Britain really didn't have any business, you know, being a coal mining uh, power. And, you know, her fight with the miners union was was... I think she was on the right side. Uh, but, you know, other things, uh, the, the, the worst thing that really happened, I think, was the deregulation, the progressive deregulation of financial markets. 
This began in the late 80s. In the United States, uh, there was a legislation uh, called Graham-Leach-Bliley that basically allowed these big banks uh, to expand and become universal banks and uh, repealed the Glass-Steagall Act that had formerly, you know, was that, that was the Depression-era uh, bill that, that limited the size of banks. And as a result, they got very, very big. And they were allowed to take huge risks by the regulators. And as a result, you had you know, this disaster unfolding uh, in 2008. Uh, and that you know, really powered a lot of populism because a lot of people lost their homes. You know, banks foreclosed on their houses because uh, they couldn't afford to pay. The people owning the banks did really well after a year or two of turbulence, uh, but the ordinary people didn't. And that was politically very toxic. In the book, you talk about the alignment of, of liberalism and democracy, and you say, look, you can have illiberal democracy, you can have undemocratic liberalism. Mm -hmm. When I look at US foreign policy, less so now, but in the sort of the, the sort of apogee of the sort of Cold War era, the 50s with Guatemala, with Iran, Mossadegh, mm -hmm. it's quite clear that the commitment to liberalism in a narrow sense, which is private property rights, yeah. don't, don't touch them, that clearly trumps democracy to the extent yes. that it wasn't just undemocratic, it was anti-democratic. So like the removal of Mossadegh in Iran, I think is pr arguably the worst political misjudgment of the 20th century, given what happens you know, 25 years later. Mm -hmm. What's your feelings on US foreign policy, particularly in that era, 1950s? Sort of yeah, uh, no, you're not going to get any argument uh, like from 80s. me about, about any of that. Uh, I think that we overestimated the threat, the security threat from the Soviet Union, and that uh, forced us into bed with a lot of very unsavory uh, characters. And, you know, it it really led to a use of a policy instrument that tried to reach into the inside of these developing countries and manipulate their politics in a very non-transparent way, which itself uh, is not something that a democracy really ought to be doing. Uh, you know, Mossadegh was bad, but overthrowing Arbenz in Guatemala is really responsible for a lot of the, you know, the terrible history of that country and then the civil war because we backed really a bunch of thugs uh, uh, because they were our thugs. And so uh, that's a, you know, very unfortunate legacy. And it was one that we were hoping to leave behind once the Soviet Union collapsed and the Cold War ended. But then you get the war on terror and it means that you're going to support the Ethiopians because they're going to be fighting, you know, Al-Qaeda. And mm. uh, so a lot of those trade-offs, you know, are still are still present. I think not to the same extent as during the Cold War, but, but you're absolutely right that that was a, you know, that was a bad period in U.S. foreign policy. So to an extent, the U.S. is still making the same mistakes, to an extent. Well, you know, I, I guess the thing about democracy uh, in American foreign policy is that it's it's never been the primary goal to which all other goals are going to be subordinated. And so we, you know, have had a good relationship with Saudi Arabia for, you know, decades. Uh, and Saudi Arabia is certainly not a democracy. Uh, most Americans have reconciled themselves to it, you know, because they thought they needed oil from the Persian Gulf. And so there have been these trade-offs that have been made over time. Um, I think that... Uh, you know, it leads to these charges of hypocrisy, but it's hypocrisy only if you think that 
the only goal of American, you know, just because American presidents praise global democracy, that that's their only objective. I mm. mean, they do have other economic and security objectives, and sometimes they need to be balanced against one another. Do you think runaway economic inequality destroys liberal democracies? Obviously, you've seen yeah. in the last couple of years, people like Bezos, Musk, their wealth is running away from from median incomes. Yeah, I think that... Um, I think that you have to have a certain level of equality of outcomes uh, to preserve liberalism. And that's why uh, just a purely liberal regime that's not linked to democracy uh, and then to demands for those kinds of redistributions isn't going to work because you're going to end up with a you know, wildly unequal system and people are not going to find that legitimate. So that's, that's, that, that could end liberal democracy if unchecked, you think? Yeah, well, so... Uh, this might sound a little bit surprising, but you know, over time, I've actually become something of a social democrat in the sense that I actually think that you know that kind of redistribution uh, and provision of universal services to people uh, is necessary to sustain a liberal society. Because mm. that's a big, a big jump—not not from you, but sort of mainstream thinking in the two thousands before the financial crisis was. Well, look, we don't care how rich these people get if the median income goes up, if life expectancy is going up, mm. if access to various goods and services is, is improving, what's the problem? Right. But you're saying actually there's a massive overhead there. Yeah, well, there's a massive overhead. The other thing that um, may not have been anticipated is just their um, uh, use of their resources in politics. Uh, it's amazing the number of you know really, really rich Americans that then fund really right-wing causes. Uh, and um, it, it always amazes me how rich Americans are. But you know, it, it means that we're not uh, in a situation of one person, one vote. I mean, certain people get a lot more votes than other people because they can turn their resources into political power. So what would you do about that? I mean, you're sounding a bit like Bernie Sanders here in the, yeah, in the, well, in the assessment. So what's, what's the response? Uh, well, we've got a really big problem because of our Supreme Court that uh, declared that spending money in politics is protected under the First Amendment. Uh, but, you know, I think a normal democracy would do what a lot of European democracies do, which is put limits on campaign fundraising and spending and, and you know, lobbying and so forth. Uh, you can't ever uh, wring all of the money out of politics because it usually finds another way of getting into the system. But I think other democracies have rules for, you know, keeping money out that you know, we could apply to our system and make it a lot more, you know, fair. So would you have something like um, a top rate of tax, which is just unthinkable now, kind of extortionate, sort of 1960s level taxes? Do you think you'd say, well, look, nobody can be worth more than 100 billion or something? Because this just, this just yeah. buys so much political power. Or do you? I'm not sure that that gets at the, uh, the core of the problem. The other thing is that a lot of the really, really rich people, you know, like Jeff Bezos, are rich because he actually did something pretty remarkable. Mm. You know, it's 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 not like he inherited all this money uh, from his father and then, you know, wasted half of it but still has all this money left. I mean, he really created something of tremendous value. And so I think as a matter of principle, I'm not comfortable with simply saying, you know, you can't get richer past a certain point. Um, but the but I, you, could certainly, you can certainly increase the progressivity of taxation uh, in, in the United States. I just think when you have people worth potentially – 200 billion. It's less of a problem in Britain. But mm -hmm. I think in the US in particular, oh. 
it's small change for that guy to give a media organization $20 million to say, look, right. just, just press this one agenda, LGBT, or not that he would do this, LGBT rights or tax or whatever. And, and like you said, they can just warp and distort the market for information so easily. And That's I think true. this is such a huge problem. for. I think it's probably the biggest problem for democracies and particularly for America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the question is, do you want to uh, reduce that threat by simply reducing the incomes of these people? Or do you want to try to regulate the way they can spend the money? And I would prefer to regulate the way they spend the money. Britain, uh, much less important on the global stage than the US, but it's a British audience that we've got. Are we a democracy? I mean, we've got a queen, we've got a monarchy, we've got an unelected second chamber. I mean, how how broad is this term? You're a political scientist. Yeah. Uh, I think that all democracies have um, features that are not based on popular choice, right? So uh, we don't uh, have the people control monetary policy. You know, we appoint specialists to do this. We have bureaucrats that deliver public health and, and, you know, social security and a lot of other uh, services that are not directly uh, elected. And, you know, you have to have experts in government. I mean, I think if you leave decision-making up to people, uh, ordinary people, they don't have the time or the expertise to really, you know, consider these very complex public policy problems. So every country has got a, a, a mix of that. Uh, I think that the question you really need to ask is, if a government really screws up, is there a fundamental mechanism by which it can be held accountable by a broad part of the public? And in that respect, you know, you've seen several revolutions taking place in Britain because people voted out of office, you know, the, you know, the current government. So in that respect, you know, that I think that's probably the most critical um characteristic of a democracy that means that it is still a democracy. So you think Britain is a democracy? Because if we had a country trying to join the EU tomorrow and they didn't have an elected head of state <laughs> and their second chamber was unelected, we say, sorry, you can't join the EU because you're not a democracy. But it's just because it's this historic European great power that we say, oh, well, it has to be a democracy because all it's kind of this weird, you know, it's like an intellectual palindrome. All Western European countries democracies and all demo- you know, Western democracies look like Western European countries. And it's like, well, analytically, we, I mean, Possibly not. Uh, I think, you know, you want a liberal democracy in the first place. And I think Britain really qualifies in that respect. Uh, You know, Britain really invented, in a sense, the rule of law. And it's still a very powerful force in this country. And I think that, you know, is a pretty important qualification because that's exactly what people like uh, Viktor Orban are trying to, you know, uh, weaken. Mm. Um, so Britain has more going for it. Uh, you know, the fact that there's an unelected head of state doesn't matter because the queen doesn't have any power, really. Uh, you know, effective power really still lies in representatives and a prime minister that is the result of popular choice. So, But do you, do you think people like Johnson and Trump are sort of like a gift to people like Orban? And this is something I worry about a lot. And actually, it feeds into a question I'll ask shortly about China which is there's a great talk by Eric um, Lee mm-hmm. on TED mm-hmm. about the Chinese Communist Party. And of course, look, it, it, there's no critique of it, but it, it's, quite a, it's quite a compelling story about how, look, we promote people who are effective problem solvers. Mm-hmm. And it, it strikes me that we don't do that with political parties in liberal democracies. Mm-hmm. We're clearly not promoting the likes of Priti Patel and Boris Johnson and Donald Trump and these people on the basis of th- their ability to solve problems. Mm-hmm. We're electing celebrities. 
journalists, party bag carriers. Do you sort of sympathise with the argument that where we are right now with liberal democracy is kind of the best advert for these authoritarians? Like they can just point at us and go, look, you don't want to be like that. Or, or what is this even about? This is a charade, this system they're claiming to sort of evangelise over. Well, look, Eric Lee, I've known for a long time, and I really don't like a lot of his arguments. I mean, the, the, you know, the issue is, uh, if you move to a more authoritarian form of government, how institutionalized is it going to be? Uh, because the problem really with that kind of government is that people in power don't accept limits on their power. And we've already, so, you know, he's, he's right that the Communist Party in China developed a lot of rules uh, so that you've got a mandatory retirement age. You used to have a 10-year term limit on the senior leadership in the Communist Party, and those were all good features. Uh, uh, it is true they've got a system for vetting younger leaders and, and you know, raising them up. But first of all, how many authoritarian countries actually have that kind of a system? I would say almost none of them. Right, your average Middle Eastern or African dictatorship just, you know, you appoint your cousin and that's, mm. you know, that person's going to be the defense minister. Um, and secondly, in China, it's it's it breaks down. You know, this is a system that was created under Deng Xiaoping after they started the reforms. But uh, the Chinese have what's what they themselves call the bad emperor problem. You create a powerful executive with very few formal checks and balances. Uh, if you have a good emperor, like I think Deng Xiaoping was. You can do amazing things much more quickly uh, and decisively than a democracy can. But if you get a bad emperor that makes bad decisions, you get, you know, the Great Leap Forward or the Cultural Revolution or some of these huge disasters in Chinese history. Now, is Xi Jinping a good emperor or mm, bad my emperor? My next question, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't think that he has been as bad as some of the historical bad emperors in Chinese history, but he could. You know, he could make very bad decisions in the future if he really faces a system that doesn't constrain his power in any way. And that, I think, is the the weakness in that system that Eric Lee doesn't really have an answer for. Final question on a, on a global scale, picking up from that. You've obviously got a, a belligerent expansionist, Vladimir Putin. I personally bought a lot of the argument that, you know, we need foreign policy realism and that would placate him to a significant extent. I no longer think that, and I think actually the people who spoke about the sort of ultra-nationalist ideologues and so on, they're, they're far more influential and powerful than I, I think we realise, I certainly didn't realise. You look at Russia, you look at China, you look at India with Modi, you look at the potential of J Japan to go to the right with the Liberal Democrat Party, I mean, that, that's a long way off, but it's eminently plausible. Are liberals losing the fight for the world's soul, I suppose? Because we say, oh... The global community, we generally mean the European Union and Australasia and the United States. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is more than half the world's population. Yeah. Or, or is it just not a, a sufficiently appealing politics? You know, Vladimir Putin is not offering rising living standards and autonomy and freedom. Do you, do you think necessarily by virtue of the politics these people have that they'll fail? Or, or could, they, could they triumph? Could we descend into a sort yeah, of no, era they, of darkness? They, they, could, uh, they could succeed. I mean... If the Russians had planned their intervention in in um, Ukraine a little bit better, uh, you know, they could be in a pretty good position to unseat the current government and put in a puppet and so forth. China certainly, you know, doesn't look like it's going to fail in the short run. 
Uh, so these are countries that we're going to have to deal with. I do think, uh, however, that we've gotten a little bit cynical about liberalism and, you know, we have kind of secretly agreed with Putin that this was a kind of obsolete doctrine. This is the doctrine of your parents or grandparents' generation. We need to replace it. And that's why I wrote this book, because I think actually it remains a better system than any of the alternatives and that you're inviting a lot of domestic violence and international aggression if you move away from, you know, a rules-based, rule-of-law liberal society. Uh, but, you know, we need to buck up a little bit. And in that respect, I think the whole Ukraine war has had a good side. I mean, obviously for the Ukrainians, it's been horrible, mm. but it's had a good side in that it's reminded people of why a liberal society is not obsolete and why it's better than a, you know, an unconstrained dictatorship. Mm. Uh, and I think that's a lesson that maybe every generation has to learn it, you know, in its own way. And hopefully this will be a little bit of a lesson to the current generation. Mm. I mean, I'm a, I'm a socialist and I've often read, and it's in your book as well, you know, I'll read the literature, which is critical of liberalism because I find it interesting, you know, mm -hmm. Patrick Deneen and so on. And some of it's really food for thought and some of it's quite coherent and persuasive. But the idea that anybody other than the individual is best placed to determine how they want to live their life, I, I just think, what, what's better than that? You know, what, what's the sell here? Unless, mm -hmm. you know, civilizationally, what, we return to like 13th century Europe or something? Yeah, yeah. And I, I, don't, I don't really get how that has mass appeal. I get how the critique can have mass appeal. Mm -hmm. But propositionally, I'm not so sure. So we talked about politicians who are failing or who have failed. Who out there, global leader or somebody on the rise, strikes you as somebody who you know, gives you hope about the future of politics? Well, look, that's, that's too easy a question right now. I mean, you know, obviously Zelensky has uh, become everybody's darling. It's interesting, you know, you were saying earlier that we elect all these, you know, uh, celebrities and, and, you know, comedians and actors and <laughs> so forth. Um, this is a half serious point. You know, there's something to leadership that actually does require uh, a kind of uh, skill that an actor has, you know, because you want to inspire people. Uh, you want to communicate with people and you want to do it in a way that is uh, not highbrow, but appeals to ordinary people. And Zelensky has managed to do that. You know, I mean, he appears in his T-shirt, you know, unshaven because he's a wartime president and he kind of knows how to play that role uh, beautifully. Uh, and as a result, he's attracted, you know, uh, my Ukrainian friends have said that they've never in their lifetimes seen the country as united as it is now. And right up until the invasion, people were still criticizing Zelensky for the way that he was handling, you know, the Russians mm. and the negotiations and this and that. But once they came under severe threat, he's their guy. Mm. Uh, and uh, I think it's, you know, actually quite inspiring to other people as well. I mean, that's because he sort of gets the, and that's something I think a lot of liberals forget, because obviously liberals in, in the West tend to be sort of procedurally minded. Mm -hmm. But he gets the, th I mean, inevitably, because he's in a war, but he gets the theatre of what he's having to do. And like you said, it's a really decisive part of politics, which I feel people like Hillary Clinton, I mean, I, I don't know Hillary Clinton, but it seems to me from her 2016 campaign, for instance, mm -hmm. they never really grasped. No. And I think that the centre-left hasn't grasped for a long time. Maybe Obama, actually. I'm, I'm, I'm being fair. He was a very theatrical figure. We've spoken a lot about where liberalism's failing. Where's it succeeding? What liberal societies are doing really well at the moment? Well, actually, I think Germany, uh, among modern democracies, is doing pretty well. Um, 
you know, Germany had a lot of problems coming out of the Second World War that were fundamentally cultural. You know, the culture had been shaped so much by Prussian militarism uh, that had disastrous impacts. And their project was basically to turn their own citizens into really liberal subjects that were tolerant and open, you know, to difference. Uh, and they succeeded. I mean, some Germans complained that they spent too much time teaching about the horrors of the Holocaust and, you know, it got kind of repetitive and, and you know, the like. But it, but it worked. And, and you can see actually the effectiveness of this when you added East Germany uh, after unification uh, where the governments, the communist governments had prepared, pretended that they uh, were tolerant and, and had, you know, new citizens that weren't, were above nationalism. But right now in the, uh, in Germany, the AFD's homeland is in these old former East German lands that had never really successfully inculcated liberal values in their own citizens. Now that means Germany's got a problem, you know, with that party. Uh, but it is a remarkable cultural change that came about. Uh, it was a little bit too successful because they also turned most Germans into pacifists, at least uh, of a certain age, which meant that they really couldn't live up to their responsibilities, you know, in terms of European defense. But now that's uh, that seems to be changing under the, you know, the pressure from Vladimir Putin. Uh, so I think that's a, you know, that was a pretty good success story. Francis Fukuyama, thanks for joining us. Okay, thank you Cheers. very much. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.